If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, 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 friends. Happy, happy hour day. It is Wednesday, October 7th. It is the first Wednesday in October. Welcome to episode number 328 of the Happy Hour Podcast. I'm so excited because today, my new friend, Pastor Dr. Derwin Gray is on the show today, and it is a good show. Him and his wife both came to faith in their late 20s, and so they didn't grow up in church, they didn't grow up following Jesus, and they are changing the world where they are. We had a really great conversation today, and Derwin and his wife are pastoring an intentionally multi-ethnic church. Their goal is to see the people of God be mobilized for the people of God. One of my favorite things we talked about today is how God's merciful impact in our own life, it should cause us to live merciful towards others. And God has been teaching me that so much lately. His book, The Good Life, it released this summer. And he wants you to know that there is true happiness in Jesus. Friends, thank you so much. My book released, if you're listening to this live, exactly six days ago, and it has been a very fun ride these past six days. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So many of you that have reached out and sent me messages about the book. I'm so grateful for you guys. Thank you so, so much. If you've gotten the book, if you've had a chance to read it, one of the best things you could do for me now and to help other people find the book is to leave a review. The best place to do that is on Amazon or wherever you bought the book. I'll take all the stars you could give me. And if you are here for the first time and you're curious, what is this book you speak of? Well, we wanna make it really easy for you to find out about my latest book. You can text UBU, all one word, no spaces, to 33777. That's UBU, no spaces, to 33777. And we're gonna text you all the information you need to know about the book. Or if you can visit jamieivy.com slash UBU. Friends, sit back. You're in for a treat today. Here's my conversation with Derwin Gray. Dr. Gray, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you on the happy hour. I am so excited. We have a mutual friend, Joel, who already hit me up, and this is what he said about you. He said, you are like the ultimate pastor. He said, you were pastoring him before you were even his legit pastor right now. And so those are some really high words, and I am so excited to chat with you. Well, Joel is a a good man, a good friend. I love him, and I love his family, and um, God kind of knit our hearts together, and uh, I love people. I think people matter to God, and so... I think one of the greatest investments that you can make is simply depositing love and encouragement in people. And I'm thankful for Joel. I love that. Okay, so you have a book that came out, The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. It came out this summer. I'm excited to chat about it now because the thing about this book, I read through it this week, and it feels like that you could write this book 
And it would be perfect for whenever it came out. Like, it's like, oh, this is the best time. And then I'm thinking this show's airing in October. I'm like, oh, this is going to be the best time. And so I want to jump in and talk about this because there's so much to talk about. Before we get started, I mentioned that you're a pastor. Let everyone know where your church is, about that, and then we'll jump into what you've done. Okay, yeah. So my wife and I, Vicki, have been married for 28 years, have a daughter, Presley. Thank you. Presley's 24. Our son, Jeremiah, is 20. We co-founded a church in 2010 called Transformation Church right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, We are an intentionally multi-ethnic, multi-generational church that's shaped by the mission of Jesus. I'm originally from San Antonio. I love cheese enchiladas and I love to fish. And you love to fish. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking you love football as well. Can we throw that in there? I do. Football. I don't miss playing. So I played <laughs> in the NFL, played in college, played in Texas. I live Friday Night Lights. I love the game because of what it teaches you. It teaches you sacrifice, discipline, teamwork, toughness. It teaches you how to think strategically as well. The best leadership lessons I've ever gotten is from coaches that have coached me along the way. And so Mm. I love the game. And what I say to parents all the time is even if your kids aren't good at it, let them play because there's some great lessons that they can learn about life. I agree. I think sports, any extracurricular, I mean, we could talk about whatever it is, but you particularly played football in high school and college. And as a career, I think any kind of thing where people are getting influenced and poured into and mattered that it changes their life forever. I need to know, because if you've been married for 28 years, you've been pastoring a church for 10, I can do a little math. What went on between (laughs) you playing football and you pastoring this church? Yeah. So, you know, both my wife and I did not attend church. We had no clue who Christ was. She came to faith through a woman at work. I came to faith through a teammate with the Indianapolis Colts. We were both about 26 when we came to faith. And we didn't know what evangelism was and ministry was. All we knew was this. Jesus loved us. Jesus changed us. Mm -hmm. And if he could do this to us, he could do this to anybody. And so we're just sharing our faith and God would open up doors. So from 1999, to 2005, we started a nonprofit organization called One Heart at a Time. I would travel around the country and speak. My wife would organize everything. And then about 2005, we started to get this unction, this, hey, uh, Derwin, have you noticed how divided and ethnically segregated the church is? Well, that's not my heart, as you can see from the New Testament. And we were like, yeah, God, somebody needs to do something about that. (laughs) It was kind of like, well, I'm glad you volunteered. And so that kind of got us going to where we planted Transformation Church in 2010. And so I've done TV work for ESPNU, Fox. But ultimately, my wife and I, our heartbeat is to see the people of God be mobilized for the mission of God. And we want to reach those who feel like I just don't get Christianity. It's Mm. too political. We want to reach people who are like us, just lost and broken because Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. So Mm. my wife is incredible. She's the greatest Christian that I know. She leads faithfully and strongly at Transformation Church, incredible gift of 
organization, an incredible discipler. She doesn't like to preach and teach, but she'll co-preach and teach with me, and she's incredibly effective. I love it. I love it. Well, I know that you mentioned this already and that when you guys founded this church, you were very intentional and missional about it being multi-ethnic. And I know that you have a lot of education experience with that as well. And I want to read this. You said this in your book. You said research by sociologist Michael Emerson shows that churches that lack ethnic diversity reproduce inequality, encourage oppression, strengthen racial division, and heighten political separation. I read that and thought, I do not want to be a part of that. Like, I do not want those things to be said of me or my church. You say, as followers of Jesus, when we isolate ourselves in bubbles of homogeneity, we will stay trapped. It's a hard one. I should have used the easier word. (laughs) Thank you for that. But you say, we will stay trapped in echo chambers of ignorance. We are sanctified faster in the context of ethnic and social difference. God, the Holy Spirit, uses our differences to make us more Christ-like. I was very much encouraged by that chapter, but I want you to kind of walk that through with me and the listener about where was that birthed in? And then how difficult has that been since 2010? Yeah, you know, so... The first thing I would say is growing up, my grandmother specifically, I had a friend that that was white and he would come to the house and say, I'm just a white boy. And Mm. she would go, no, you're a boy who happens to be white. And so that was always sprinkled. My friend group was always black, white, Latino. And so my wife is white. We got married in college. And our friend group was diverse. The first time that we experienced ethnic segregation is when we became Christians. It was like, okay, we leave the nightclub where it's diverse, but then we become Christians. And it's like you walk back into 1964. It's Mm. like you can't say all white church because that's not politically correct. You can say all black church. It's like, so you guys got to choose white or black church. We were like, Well, what does the New Testament say about that? So as we begin to fall in love with Jesus because of his love for us, we just developed this hunger for the scriptures. And we saw that the churches that the Apostle Paul started had Jews and Gentiles. We didn't know what a Gentile was. Well, a Gentile was everybody else. So Mm. we would talk to pastors and say, it seems like these churches that Paul started were started around the love of Jesus and it brought ethnic diversity. Why can't we do that? And then I would hear all these excuses. And finally, it was like, well, go do it. And that's really where it came from. And ultimately, now that I've been able to codify and understand theology better, it's all rooted. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, through you, I'm going to give you this big old family made up of all the families And then you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have the nation of Israel. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus, through his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit creates this this beautifully diverse, redeemed family. And this family is to be a living classroom to teach the world This is what love actually looks like. Now, the problem is in America, we have allowed a racialized culture to determine what the church looks like more than the Christ. And one of the greatest enemies to racial reconciliation and redemptive justice and a full expression of the gospel is how we measure success. 
if we measure success by the three B's, budgets, butts, and buildings, then that's going to affect our methodology. Okay. Well, when you look at Jesus's model of success, it's love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in Luke, Jesus says, you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor? Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through like 33 or so. He says, it looks like a good Samaritan. It looks like the enemy showing what love is. And in my book, the chapter on happy or the merciful, I actually walk through the good Samaritan because in a Jewish culture, a good Samaritan would like be saying a good Nazi. Mm. Jews and Samaritans had racial animosity, religious animosity, but you see a good Samaritan going over to a Jewish man who had been beaten and bloodied. So what does that show us? It shows us that mercy is not afraid to cross ethnic and religious boundaries. It shows us that mercy counts the cost because he poured wine on the wound. He uh, wrapped it. That cost money. He put the man on his mule. That cost money. He put him in a hotel. That cost 14 days of wages. But here's another cost, and the story doesn't tell us this, but imagine that Samaritan going back to Samaria and saying, hey, by the way, you know our enemies, the people we've had 400 years of war with? I helped a Jew. Hmm. So he probably lost relational currency. But what's beautiful about the good Samaritan, what was a Samaritan? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. What's the church supposed to be? A Jew and a Gentile in one body. And so as I've walked people through the chapters about being merciful, there's this beautiful picture that can bring healing, not only to our local churches, but we can bring healing to our culture. Mm. Uh, Gosh, we're so unmerciful. Yeah. But by the way, you can't give away what you don't possess. Mm. That if you haven't drank deeply from the well of God's mercy, you're spiritually dry and you can only give away dust. Mm. Mm. You know, you also, I don't think we've said this yet, but but in this book, The Good Life, you take us, the reader, through the Beatitudes. And so we walk through all of this, and there's nine chapters all about how Jesus teaches us about finding true happiness. And I think that is the thing that, honestly, everyone here is looking for is how do I be happy in the midst of this, 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 and you talk about it. One of the things I found really interesting when you were talking about the chapter on happy are the peacemakers is that we can read the scripture and we can sometimes think, oh, well, everything must have just been going fine there. But what we're saying is the culture and the climate there was, I don't know if we could relate it to what we sometimes feel here, but very much lacking peace. And Jesus is looking at Uh, the followers of his. He's looking at the religious establishment. He's looking at all of them and saying, hey, the way that you're going to become peaceful is through me. And I feel like that that's the same thing we're experiencing today, Derwin. Am I right about this? Yeah. Absolutely. And what I would say too is, I would say that the time of Jesus was actually more tumultuous than our time because the nation of Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. Mm Mm-hmm. If you were not a Roman citizen, you did not have Roman privilege. And so you had racial animosity, you had class animosity, you had oppression. And even within Judaism, 
you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more in league with Rome. The Pharisees were more of the common people, but the poor, the sinner, the sick, the outcasts were even further on the margins. And so old man in Jesus's day was like 38 years old. Mm. You got famine, you got plague. And Jesus makes this in, insight. He, he says, blessed. The word blessed in Greek is the word makaros, and it literally means happy. Happy are the peacemakers, and here's the key, for they will be called children of God. So my children uh, look like their mom. They look like me. Why? Because they have our DNA. Mm -hmm. Well, when we have the Holy Spirit, God's DNA, peacemaking is a part of us intrinsically. And peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace looks like the cross. Mm. Peace goes into the mess to bring about reconciliation and repentance. And so vertically, we have peace with God. He initiates peace with us through the cross. And I think this is so important. And Jamie, I want to pause here. We need more Christians to think more about what Jesus has done for them than what mm -hmm. they're supposed to do. The more we fall in love with him because he first loved us, there was nothing in us to love. We didn't earn it that God set his heart to love us before time ever began. Before my dad ever saw my mom at 16 years old and thought she was cute, Jesus loved me. Mm. Before anybody ever said, hey, Derwin, you're a good football player, Jesus set his face to the cross to love me. And as we fall deeper and deeper in love with him, that moves us into the world to say, how can I now leave Jesus's fingerprints of mm. peace on broken circumstances. And one of the things that I try to point out in the book, and this is why I say to a lot of my white Christian brothers and sisters, is that it's not enough just to say, well, I'm not racist. It's not enough to say, well, I'm for justice. What's enough is we enter into it mm -hmm. like Jesus as ambassadors yeah. of reconciliation. We don't stand on the sidelines. No, we jump into it. And a lot of times like, well, I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake. Well, I would rather make a mistake in love than to sit on the sidelines. And so what I've done in the chapter, Happy Are the Peacemakers, is I give a theology of reconciliation and practical steps to take. Because peacemaking is not passive. Peacemaking is saying, I see conflict. Mm -hmm. And I'm going into it. And like I tell everybody at Transformation Church is this, treat everybody like Jesus Christ died for them because mm -hmm. he did. Mm -hmm. I don't have to agree with you to love you. So good. I'm looking here and you do. I think what I want people to know is that you do walk through. And I remember I have them, I numbered them. First things you can do. Second thing you can do. Third thing you can do is to walk through that together. And it is so important. And I was just thinking, even when you're talking about that, is that imprint of the Holy Spirit on us is that Jesus entered into the mess. He never stood on the sideline. He never just said, oh, this is what I hope happens. But he actually entered in and he ate dinner and he forgave sins and he he healed. He did all of that by entering into people's mess. 
If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Speaking of happiness some more, because this is what I want you to talk about, because I think a lot of people might be listening and go, okay, that's cool, Derwin and Jamie, that you guys are finding true happiness in Jesus because your life seems to be going really great right now. Like everything's good. Like no one's sick. You you know, all the things are happening. You have your jobs, all the things. But you've walked through tragedy. You've walked through cancer with your wife. You've walked through tragedy with career. You've walked through hard times. And so- yeah. So how do how do we find happiness in the midst of tragedy? Yeah. You know, so let me say this is the happiness that Jesus wants to give us is not a happiness that's based on our circumstances. The happiness that Jesus wants to give to us is a happiness of becoming who we were meant to be. When you look at the Beatitudes, it's a living portrait of what God's righteousness is. So happiness is about becoming the person you were created to be. Therefore, our circumstances no longer dictate our happiness, our intimacy and transformation with Christ does. So what I would say is this, happiness is not about good things always happening to you. Happiness is about God making us good for the world. Hmm. And I don't know who this is for, but I have been sexually molested. My parents were 16 and 17 when they had me. They were children. They were in and out of my life. Um, I grew up poor. I know what domestic abuse is. I've seen violence. I've seen what mental illness can do when it's untreated. My wife has gone through cancer. Uh, My mother was diagnosed with COVID. My nephew was diagnosed with COVID. We've had people at our church die of COVID. And so Jesus wants to help us. He wants to wean us off of looking at circumstances to have our happiness. And kind of what I think is is happening is like you read my book and it's like the two-year-old that it's time for them to get off of the pacifier well, circumstances is our pacifier. In the first few, few days, you're like, I need my pacifier. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you realize, no, actually I don't. And so the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit means to be God dependent. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, what breaks God's heart, breaks my heart. That pushes me into prayer. Blessed are the humble, that who I am is found in Christ. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Being merciful. I mean, think about it. How many ladies would not want to be married to a man that's merciful? Mm. Or how many men would not want to be married to a woman that's merciful or have children that are humble and merciful? Peacemakers, those who walk through persecution, giving grace, not vengeance. Mm -hmm. Loving your enemies, as Christ says. The Beatitudes help you become the person you would want to be friends with. It's so true when you say that, like, yes, I want that person to have all these things. So if I Mm -hmm. want that person to have all these things, I should look at myself and want them. You say this in your book. You say, this is what happiness looks like. Happiness is not the absence of bad circumstances. It's the presence of Godfidence. And I was like, oh, Godfidence. That's what we have. Certainty and hope in God, despite of the circumstances. Yeah. That is difficult, but I think the longer you walk with the Lord, which is, I've been a Christian for 20 years, so the longer I've walked with him, the more I can trust that to be true because I've seen it be true before. Mm -hmm. I've seen that come through when circumstances weren't the best. I've seen that I can still walk and find that happiness and that peace because of him in me. Derwin, I, one of my favorite stories, you're a great storyteller, you tell a lot of stories in here, but one of my favorite stories was about the man that you met in prison. 
Oh, yeah, Brian. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about this story? Yeah, so several years ago, we had an older couple at our church who was volunteering at a prison, and they invited me to come and speak. I went and spoke, and the men loved it. And all of a sudden, before you know it, they became a part of our church. And now we have several churches in prisons throughout South Carolina. Well, anyway, at this one church, this is a guy named Brian. And Brian was in there for murder. In his early 20s, he was in a drug rage and he killed his best friend. He doesn't even remember it happening. Mm -hmm. He's very remorseful, very repentful. He's trying to make up to the family that he hurt. Well, anyway, he was leading worship and kind of leading the church and the prison. And we were just taken aback with just how godly he was. And so we built a relationship and ultimately we said, hey, if you ever get out, you'll have a job here at Transformation Church. Well, in South Carolina, you don't get out on parole if you murdered someone. You spend the rest of your life there. Somehow, somewhere in God's grace, he got parole and he's been on staff with us now for almost two years. And when he sings Amazing Grace, it's his life. Like mm -hmm. he really gets it. And so Brian is a living portrait of what salvation looks like. And he wants to make amends to the family that he heard and he understands it. But he also understands God's grace. And what's cool now is he actually goes back into the prisons and ministers to the men where he is. And so that's what happiness looks like. Happiness looks like seeing redemption in someone who would seem unredeemable. Mm -hmm. Happiness looks like saying, we're going to start a ministry in prisons to touch lives. And it's not just me. Like we have hundreds of volunteers. Happiness is not just getting. Happiness is giving. Mm -hmm. Like for God so loved the world. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says it gave God pleasure to give us the gospel. So when we are giving the gospel, it's pleasurable. And every Christian is in full-time ministry. It's just your company pays you to be a missionary. That's right. You know, and they go, man, they took God out of school. I'm like, so Christians can't go to school anymore? <laughs> right. No, no. God is very much present there. The question is, are we relying mm. on the presence of his spirit to be effective teachers and administrators and students? You know, so um, happiness is abiding in God's presence and taking upon his character. Mm. Did you see that in Brian? Because I think you said in the book that you had a relationship with him before you knew that he was convicted of murder. So seeing that in him, what was your first human response to, oh, I wouldn't have thought that was what it was? Because I would imagine you'd be like, oh, okay. That's it for all of us. We were like, you're in here for what? You? Yeah. He's like, yeah, man. And he was on drugs and he just spaz out of his mind, but there was such a beautiful, unassuming Godfidence about him and his love for Christ. Mm, and by I the way, it. some of the best places to worship I've ever experienced is I have experienced the freedom of men behind prison bars, and it is absolutely incredible. And we're seeing men get saved, get discipled, and not go back to prison. And that's the goal. That is exactly the goal. That's exactly right. You know, I have spent a couple of years volunteering in our county jail, so a little bit different than prison. The women there would not be there long term, hopefully. But when I started doing that, 
Derwin, I'll admit that previous in my life, I would have thought, oh, sure, you got saved in prison. I mean, you know, what else do you have to do? Sure, you did. You know, you're trying to get parole. And I remember thinking when God really convicted me of that really, really like pride in my heart to think that, you know, probably 15 years ago, I remember almost feeling like I started following Jesus at one of my lowest points in my life. And that is when you kind of look around and go, I can't make myself do this anymore. There's something else. And you look up and there's Jesus. And I've seen a lot of women in jail transform their lives because they get to the end. And sometimes we get to the end and Jesus is always still there. Like he's always there. And Jamie, the reality is all of us are born into this prison called sin and death. And when I say sin, it's more than I just did something bad. It's I'm choosing to willfully be at odds with God, and it's going to lead to spiritual death and physical death. And the greatest moment of our life is when we realize that Jesus puts the key in the prison cell and he opens up the door and says, you can come out. And so that's the beginning of the journey of Happiness Psalms. 32 one, happy is the persons whose sins have been forgiven. That's right. That's right. I was just reading earlier today in John chapter eight, where Jesus has an interaction with the woman who was brought before him, who had been caught in the act of adultery. And I'm always, always so profoundly struck when he looks at her in the eyes and says, I do not condemn you. And the thing that I always think about that chapter and those couple of verses is the Pharisees were right about this sin has to be accounted for. Like sin has to be accounted for. God is a just God. Sin has to be accounted for. And I sometimes try to imagine like what Jesus is thinking, like the things that we don't see in scripture. And the thing is, is Jesus is like, I'm going to take care of that sin. Like I'm the accountant for that sin. Her sin will be taken care of and justified and it's by me. And she was looking right at him. And I love that story so much because Jesus met her, took care of her sin, and then she went on her way. It's beautiful. And you know what's beautiful about that story as well? God's grace is big enough for the woman caught in adultery and it's big enough for those who wanted to condemn her. The ones holding the stones. Yeah, 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 because... I actually write about this story in the book, and I've got some question is, what happened to the man? Mm-hmm. I mean, did did he run off? Was he a part of the mob? Was it a setup? Where did he go? Why wasn't he caught? But the part when Jesus says, and here's another insight, it happens at the temple. Mm-hmm. And for the Jewish people, the temple is where heaven and earth met. And so in that scene, we see Jesus replacing the temple because he's going to offer her forgiveness. And then, you know, he tells those who have stones, if you have not sinned, because everybody puts their stones down because they've sinned. And then he says to her, go and sin no more. So the justice of God, the holiness of God, the grace, the love of God, all of who God is, is placed in that moment. And the condemner has a place as well as the condemned. So beautiful. It's one of my favorite stories. Where do you think the man was? (laughs) I think that's kind of the idea because I do believe that there's a hint within the culture of how women were mistreated, women were abused. And so he might have, we don't know. So it's almost like the Pharisees and scribes trying to set up Jesus. It's like they didn't really care. 
or else yeah. they would have brought both. Yeah, right? and it had to be a man of high status because how were they in the temple? Oh. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. But I think what's cool too is when Jesus writes on the ground, I believe it's an allusion to when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and with the finger of God, the Ten Commandments was written. Uh-huh. And Jesus is like, don't y'all know I wrote these commandments? <gasps> Jerwin, I just got chills all over my body. <laughs> that's what you think he wrote. Yeah, that's what I put in a, a book. Jesus is writing in the dirt like the same finger that wrote the law of Moses is right here. And the holiness that God requires is the holiness that he gives us as a gift. Mm. I'm literally taking notes. Like, as if I can't listen to this later. I'm taking notes. I'm like the temple where heaven and earth met. I'm so, yes. I'm so taking notes. It's so good. It's so and good. And Jesus replaces it. And, and one of my passions is to move people away from using Jesus to worshiping Jesus. Mm. Like, it excites me that you're excited not just about the functionality of Jesus, but the person of Jesus. Mm. And often what I tell men is like when you, you know, early in your marriage, you know, it's the physicality and all this stuff. But as the marriage grows, you just want to be with your wife. And when we start out as Christians, like, well, Jesus is going to do this. I was at the mall and praise Jesus. I found a parking spot close, (laughs) you know, but you move to a place of going, I just, I just want to be with you. Mm. I just want to be with you. And I think a lot of Western Christianity is Jesus, I just want to use you. Now, we use little words around it, but no, no, it's I'm using you, not worshiping you. And a Jesus that is not worshiped is not the true Jesus. Mm. Jesus is not a divine butler. Mm. What do you see the downfall of Christians getting into this mentality, whether they know it or not? Like you said, maybe we have nicer words than I'm using you, Jesus. But what do you see as a downfall in someone's life if they don't really understand that they're really just using him as a glorified butler? Well, let me take a big macro look first. I think the result is what you see in our nation now. It's burning down. And the church really doesn't have a credible answer. Like it wasn't the church leading the charge for racial injustice. It hasn't been the church leading the charge for saying, no, women should get paid the same amount as men for the same work. I think what you see is an anemic and weak church. And I don't care how many campuses or buildings you have, budgets, butts, buildings, right? It's like, are we salt and light? And so then personally, I think that how do we respond to tough times? You know, my uh, my wife's granddad was born in 1914. He experienced World War II, the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War I, Korean War, Vietnam War, stock market crashes in the 90s, the Gulf Wars, all those things. So understanding that this is not the worst time in human history. And so I think a lot of times we lack spiritual grit when we worship a thin Jesus. Mm. And I think a lot of the self-help Jesus, people are going, this doesn't work. Right. And it's like, well, no, it's not meant to work. Mm-hmm. It's meant for you to get swept up in the love of God, in the kingdom of God, and through his transformative presence, 
you make him present in your life and spheres of influence. Mm. And one of the things at the end of your book, which I, I really appreciate, is you encourage the reader to read through the Beatitudes for 30 days, to really soak it in, to really sit there and say, what do I want to learn about Jesus and about finding true happiness through him by reading Matthew 5, 1 through 12 every day for 30 days? Yeah. Um, and I think when we're talking, what you're just saying about how we have this idea of using Jesus versus knowing him, it's a lot of people actually going to church, calling themselves Christians, and not knowing anything about the ways of Jesus. Yeah. And that... To me, it's a scary bot. It's a scary church is what it feels like. Yeah. And, and sadly, the people need preachers who are willing to, we need less entertainment and more theology of who Christ is. Frankly, I think Jesus is relevant. I think he's beautiful. And we need to trust the Holy Spirit. Like we've entertained ourselves into ineffectiveness. The last thing I want is people to read The Good Life or to watch a sermon and go, wow, Derwin is so cool. I want people to go, oh my goodness, Jesus is beautiful. Mm. Jesus is gracious. I never knew forgiveness was this amazing. You know, like I want people to be enamored with who he is and trust the Holy Spirit because he rubs off on us. Mm. And when you look at the Beatitudes, the world can use mercy. The world can use peacemakers. The world can use integrity. Let's make integrity great again. Mm. Let's make holiness great again. Let's make love great again. Let's make forgiveness greater than. You know what? The only thing we need to counsel in this culture is sin, not people, you know? It's so good. And you know what? This is an encouragement to everyone because you said earlier, you know, they took God out of school and you're like, no, there's students in school. And you said, oh, your business is just paying you to be a missionary. And what you're saying here is that everyone that's listening, no matter your job, you don't have to be a pastor because you said you want people to not hear your sermons or your messages or read your books and think, man, Derwin's so cool, but look how beautiful Jesus is. But I just want to encourage the listener, like whatever you do every single day, you have that exact same opportunity that Derwin is talking about of going, how do I make Jesus bigger than myself today, wherever I am? Yeah. And when I think when we can think that way about everything we do, whatever our job is, if we're a teacher, a banker, a president of a company, a professor, whatever it might be, is that we get to make most of Jesus, and yeah. that's when the world is going to be transformed. And, you know, when we allow Jesus to transform us, it's like you inhale grace, you exhale service. It's like transforming the world is the natural byproduct of a transformed life. And it starts on the inside out, right? This just crossed my mind as it pertains to happiness and growth and parenting and all these things. My son was one of the top high school players in the country. So when I played the NFL, I was 5'11", 202. As a senior in high school, he was 6'1", 210. He was bigger, stronger, faster, longer as a high school player than I was as an adult, just a beautiful athlete. I mean, he was poetry in motion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're playing a state championship game, first quarter, third series of the game, his teammate gets blocked into the lower part of his leg, tears ankle ligaments, breaks his leg. So I could tell he's hurt because I had been in the same position before. And it's the worst thing, you know, the coach comes up, hey, come down to the field. So I go down to the field. The medical staff is around him. He's got a tear running down his eye. 
And I said something to him that I would say to him ever since he was a little boy. I put my hand on his chest and put my other hand on his head and rubbed his head. And I, I said, son, I am so proud of you. It's like, man, I love you so much. I said, what a way to go out. You literally gave your body for your team. So he stops crying and we carry him to the sideline. His ankle's like this big, three or four times the size it should be. He's in pain. He's got ice on it. On the inside, I'm dying. And he says, dad, look at him. And he's smiling. I said, what, son? He said, uh, and people are in the stands, but it's just quiet. It's just me and him. He says, uh, dad, God is so good. I'm like, wait, what? He goes, dad, God is so good. I'm like, son, why? He goes, well, I could have got hurt in the first game. I could have got hurt really bad. And I'm like, dude, your ankle is the size of a third grader. But anyway, so I'm just letting him go. And he's like, he's like, God is so good. And in that moment, that's the good life. That's happiness. Mm. Our circumstances were not good, Mm. but God was good in the circumstances that my son was praising his way through the pain and that touched my heart and released my pain and we start praising together. That's the good life. Mm. The good life is a good God getting in the midst of us and making us good. Mm. So anyway, he's got to get surgery. He's in a boot for months. Long story short, he goes to Wake Forest. He's having a great camp. Three days before camp is over, he calls us and he says, Dad, Mom, I'm really good at football, but I don't love it. Um, I think God is calling me to learn foreign languages and to leverage business for the gospel in Europe. That's what I want to do. Well, come home, son. He came home, went to junior college, got a job, and now he's a sophomore at the University of Montana, majoring in political science and German. He taught himself Norwegian, and he's learning Portuguese as well, and he loves the Lord. That's the Mm. good life. Mm. And he lives in Montana. That's the good life, too. I'm just going to say that, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can't leave that out. That's a good life. That's a beautiful story about how not dependent on our circumstances, God is still good. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Derwin, I'm a fan of you. I'm a fan of your church. I'm a fan of everything you guys are doing. Hopefully one day our paths will cross and I can meet your wife, Vicki. But thanks for talking about this because I think this is a concept that for the rest of our lives, that we're going to be people who are chasing after Jesus going, man, I want to find true happiness and peace in you. I know it's there and I'm going to fight for it every single day. So thank you for encouraging us with that. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you and continue the great kingdom work. And tell your sons to go get it this season. I will. I will. Let's go, Tigers. Uh, I'll do that. Thank you. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell, and this whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Friends, enjoy your week. I hope October's treating you well. Share this show with a friend. Have a happy hour with a friend. I'll be back with you on Friday with a local friend of mine and pastor of Celebration Church, which is right up the road from me in Georgetown, Miss Lori Champion, and you are going to love our conversation. See you guys back here on Friday.